I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. And Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Hello, everybody. It's me, your Beatle pal, Chachi. Welcome to Get Back to the Beatles. Here we are on the Boston Podcast Network, pod617.com, and all kinds of platforms that you can hear us. I, Apple iTunes and Spotify, all kinds of availability of our podcast everywhere. So thank you all for tuning in. If you You're don't on, know- Chachi, you're on iHeartRadio now as well, by the way. I'm on iHeart too? You are. Look at that. Oh, well, That's mm-hmm. very, very nice. The producer, David Yaz, just gave us some news right on the air. So wow. thank you very much. That's fantastic. If you don't know me, I've uh, gee, I've hosted uh, Breakfast with the Beatles in New England for 25 years, somewhere around there, 20, 25 years. Uh, we're in Massachusetts, we're in New Hampshire and Maine, and uh, my co-host here for our Beatles podcast, a dear friend who I've known for probably just as much as long as that, is Mr. David Gallant. He's the Beatles professor at Suffolk University in Boston. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, David. Chachi, always a pleasure. It's a pleasure for me as well. We are brought to you in part by Subaru of New England and Direct Tire and Auto Service. We have a big program for you today. Also in studio with us, I filled it up with all kinds of academia. Is that how you say it? Aca- See, yes, See, yes uh, of academia. Course. Academia, uh, there you go. Academics, uh, uh, baggage heads, <laughs> as we used to call ourselves in graduate school. This is going to be an interesting show because I barely made it out of high school and we're sitting with two professors in the studio, Mr. Steve Minichello, who teaches the Beatles class at Worcester State University and Worcester Polytech. So, hi, Steve. Welcome back. Hello, Chachi. And by the way, I barely made it out of high school, okay. so please. <laughs> Thank you very Well, you make me feel much more comfortable. But I'm very excited because on our phone today, and this will make our two studio professors at ease to hear that we have the great Kenneth Womack, who is also the dean of the Wayne D. McMurray School of Humanities and Social Sciences at Monmouth University. And we have him on the phone. Mr. Womack, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great. It's wonderful to be on such a distinguished panel. <laughs> it is amazing, right? How do you guys yeah, feel? You had, yeah, you really didn't know. Maybe you knew that, Mister Womack. Yes, no, uh, Chachi. I I'm not at ease. I'm in awe. Uh, uh, Dean Womack is probably uh, uh, a hero of mine uh, who is uh, able have, has been able to to uh, stand uh, uh, bestride those worlds of of academia and popular culture and. Uh, you know, um, it's it's fantastic. I mean, the 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 laundry list to his his CV and his publications. You know, uh, this is not a podcast about uh, uh, the book, the uh, postmodern human condition. It's <laughs> it is uh, uh, there is a there is a Beatles chapter in there, however, though on the uh, um, uh, apocalyptic nature of the White Album, which I think is is absolutely fantastic. It's hard to sort of translate that to uh, college freshmen, but I'm hoping to get there someday. No, I've I've told you, Chachi, I want to want to try to uh, uh, sweet talk Professor uh, Womack into. Uh, Maybe uh, uh, proposing to the MLA that he and I put together one of their um, approaches to teaching volumes on the Beatles. I, Look at that! I, you're already I'm pitching him. You're I only am five I minutes into it. the podcast. I you know, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't have these opportunities uh, very often. So, and Steve, you have it. I say I got it. I say yes, and let's do it. Email me tonight, and we'll get started. Holy Th- cow! There you go. Good for you. And Steve, you want to say hello to Ken? How you? Oh, oh boy, there we go. There you yeah. go. I think I won something here. I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, I'm wondering, Ken and David, I'm wondering, since three of us teach and Chachi doesn't, do we got to be? We have to be certain not to teach him the special handshake, right? Oh, oh yeah. He, yeah. He, he, 
He cannot see the handshake. No, okay, okay. all right. Okay, all right. that's Long fine. Clear. But I, clear. I will tell you, Ken, if you don't mind me calling you Ken. Uh, let me see now. David Gallant, you have taken students to different events, and the, the school budgets money for you. You've taken students to Ringo and different local events. And Steve Minichello, have you budgeted for to take students to places Beatle related? No, I budget for pencils and pens, and that's about okay. It. Well, let me tell you about Ken Womack taking students to Liverpool, right, ah. Ken? Oh, it's much better than that. Yeah, we went to London and Liverpool, and they uh, they had some marvelous experiences. This was the first week of school, uh, and this is the thing you can only get away with if you're dean, <laughs> because I got to get them out of their classes so that they could go on this magical mystery tour. They got to go into Abbey Road Studios for several hours, got oh. to hang out with uh, some folks at Universal, uh, of course, had amazing tours of, of Liverpool. It was really spectacular, and we did it all in about five days. Chachi, this is what I'm telling you about. This is the, the, the in on the jealousy factor. I've told you my dream over uh, uh, these past uh, several years. You know, I... Uh, uh, it, my uh, former dean uh, did sort of uh, invent this seminar for freshman model and uh, within which I, I teach the Beatles class. But by trade, I'm actually a full-time administrator at, uh, at my university, working in academic advising, and uh, do teach this uh, class, which grew out of a uh, English literature survey, one of those standard surveys, uh, romantic era to the present. And I did a segment on, on post-war popular, uh, uh, popular culture in England. But I've always wanted to take students uh, spring break uh, in the midst of having a course where we would do a study tour of, uh, of, of Liverpool, but connect it to the roots in Boston and have John Henry, who is the owner of both the Boston Red Sox and Liverpool FC, fund it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. fundraising. There you go. There you go. Exactly. Right. Try to get that on board. So that's fantastic to be able to uh, take students to have them see it on site and, uh, and, and walk in the paths. Uh, it's, it's very difficult sometimes when I, talk to students who are going to study abroad in England, and our sites are mostly in London. I say, look, take the train up, please. And so a couple have, and they've sent me back photos with the statue down in uh, Albert Dock. So, you know, well, let's get them up there. See that, Ken? We have three people, myself included, who are in awe of you for all kinds of reasons. And uh, first and foremost, probably because you get to take students to Liverpool and London. But you, my friend, are probably the hardest working man in show business over the last couple of months. Uh, you've been probably doing interviews and all kinds of things relating to Abbey Road and the 50th anniversary, correct? Absolutely, and there's no better cause. It's such an amazing achievement as we look back at it and uh, re-experience it. I don't know about you guys, but it's been on heavy rotation in my car. Yes, we have the box set here, and uh, the guys, the professors, were both looking at it. It's pretty amazing. And I should start by saying uh, Mr. Womack, Kenneth Womack, has a great book out called Solid State, The Story of Abbey Road and the End of the Beatles. And Ken has numerous books out, uh, and this one is fantastic. We have all uh, read it, and we thoroughly enjoyed it, and we're, like I said, we're thrilled and honored uh, to have you on our podcast today. Let's just start with the first two words of your book, the word solid state, which really does mean a lot in terms of the Abbey Road album. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Solid state, of course, refers to the mixing desk uh, that uh, revolutionary revolutionized. Wow, that was tough. Revolutionized the album. Uh, it was a solid state transistor desk as opposed to the uh, REDD red um, tube desks that the Beatles had been using previously, or rather their production team, I guess. And, uh, 
that's why when we listen to the record today or when, you know, when fans first heard the album in the fall of 1969, it had a different sound. It was warmer and brighter. Um, and it certainly had a lot more definition and separation as far as the instrumentation and the tracks go. So, um, it was the, uh, the revolutionary component in the making of that record. Well, and, and I guess where we should probably start too is the revelation, uh, you know, cause for years, um, being a first generation Beatle fan for years, it was always about, you know, they knew Abbey Road would be their last album. That's why the song, the end was at the end of the album. But, yeah, uh, Mark Lewison has just revealed some audio where they were trying to plan the next album. So that kind of puts a hole in that whole theory, right? Well, it does. I mean, we've had that tape uh, uh, since the mid-1970s. We've pretty much known exactly what was on it. Uh, a fellow named Anthony Fawcett, who was John and Yoko's assistant in 1968-69, and I think he crept into 1970 with them. Anthony uh, recorded the the meeting with Harrison, Lennon, and McCartney. Ringo was unable to be there uh, in the fall of 1969, where they do speculate about, you know, what next. Um, and they would have a couple of meetings like this, and, and neither of them would go very well. Uh, but, you know, we, we have we have indeed known about it for a long time. It's, it's wonderful uh, that Mark has indeed confirmed it. I uh, Full confession, um, uh, I did check with him. We were doing our White Album Conference last year. I said, look, if I talk about the tape, am I okay? And he said, yeah. So I do. <laughs> well, that's good. And you talk about it, obviously, in the book, and you talk about the conversation. And it's, it's a really amazing conversation, especially when John and Paul bring George's compositions into the conversation. And George is there kind of defending himself. And John seems to defend him as well to Paul. I thought that was really an interesting exchange. It is a, it is a very interesting exchange. And it, and then it turns back on itself where, you know, George kind of says, you know, thanks, John, for defending me, but it's not like you've been playing on my songs. You know, it was, <laughs> exactly. uh, it's, a, it's a terse meeting, uh, to say the least. Um, but it does help us understand, I suppose, why they couldn't move forward, right? Why this, this particular artistic fusion had sort of hit a wall in, in many different ways, but at least in this, in terms of their creative moment, they had clearly, clearly run into a wall in that instance um, that was seemingly insurmountable. Kenny, this is uh, Steve. Steve again, Steve Minichello. And um, you mentioned quite a bit about uh, John and Yoko's drug use. Um, how far into the Abbey Road sessions did that, did that carry? Well, it, it, it was probably at its most intense um, in July and August. So, you know, at the, at the height of the recording and, and certainly John Lennon's participation in the album, it was at a fever pitch. And, um, you know, it probably from what we understand, and again, you know, he's not here to, to talk about it. So we have to speculate, but, um, we do have evidence that, you know, their drug dealer was coming into the studio, which was, um, you know, tough to think about. Um, uh, when we when we think about that the making of that record and of course there are clear parallels here five decades later to all these families that we know of who deal with alcoholism or opioid abuse uh, and who are trying to find a way to steer clear of those folks and yet try to get them help and the Beatles were really as a kind of created family they were in that space too and 
the summer of 1969, you know, trying to deal with someone whom they loved, uh, but uh, was was clearly on this this other parallel journey, this drug journey. And you, I'm sure you both, all three of you know the famous Paul McCartney quote, we were far out boys, but we weren't that far out. <laughs> right. Right. And you know what, what I found amazing, and, you know, with John's upbringing, his childhood and all the the issues and disappointments that any other person would not have the self-discipline to get himself off of heroin. And I found it amazing that they were both able to do it. Did they do it on their own? They pretty much did, right? Well, they did, but you know, almost immediately they relapsed. Um, they had a lot of uh, trouble, you know, and, and by John's own admission, they just couldn't kick it um, because of its, its allure. Um, he is strong-willed. Um, a, a Beatles colleague that I, you guys probably know, uh, Howie Edelson, was remarking to me a few months ago, and it really, really stuck with me how, you know, Paul McCartney could try just about anything out there and bounce right back and, you know, write Hey Jude or whatever. <laughs> I mean, he just had a, a very different body chemistry than John Lennon, who, if it were there, he would use it, you know, by his own admission. And it's an interesting study and. In, and how different people react to different things uh, in their lives. And Paul had a very different resistance and tolerance from what we can see in the late 1960s than, than did his famous colleague. It was also maybe perhaps uh, the, what Lenin felt he was using this for, right? I mean, whether it was to, if it, if it was an outgrowth afterwards from LSD trying to find answers and, and, and opening up his, his consciousness, and, you know, it, it's not that big a leap to say that that led to the heroin use, but this sort of search for something, right, to look for answers there. And, and in addition to perhaps McCartney's body chemistry, um, I don't think that he was probably using this to find answers. It may have been an escape. It may have been something more physically oriented than intellectual. I mean, he would, you know, his, his, his intellect was more toward finding answers in, in reading and in literature, right? That was more of his background. So maybe the That's uses, it. you know, the uses of it were, were, were quite different. And I had always hoped, I'd always imagined, and probably was, was lying to my students back in the day when, when we would read in parallel the lyrics to Cold Turkey and Coleridge's Pains of Sleep which are basically almost the same version of a, of, of a lyrical sense of I'm, I'm in torment, I'm in pain uh, due to an addiction. Um, and I thought that, you know, what the, the way Lennon helped himself or was able to come out of it was by transmuting it into art. But, you know, there's still a lot of abuse even after cold turkey. Oh, there absolutely is. And um, I, I like the, the Coleridge uh, sideline there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I do think for Paul McCartney, it was probably more of a party drug, right? He was engaged with swinging London in a very different way than John Lennon, um, who was often unhappy with his circumstances uh, and was probably using it in, a, in just a very different way. Um, and so hence, as, as you said, better than I could came out of it in a different way than, than certainly Paul McCartney would. Yeah, it's, it certainly seems to be an outgrowth of, of whatever their personality difference is. I think that my, my students look at it a certain way in their own sense of their family dynamics of here are these two young guys both having lost their mothers at young formative ages, and one reacts in a way to push the world away, and the other one wants to please the world and bring them into a circle, even though they had very similar 
tragic circumstances, the way that they dealt with it was quite different. And of course, we have a lot of that great music because of that difference, right? And because of that tension and because of that, of that dynamic. Uh, but then I guess maybe those differences become reified and hardened uh, um, as, they, uh, as they part ways uh, toward the end. I, I want to circle back very brief, uh, briefly to the reference to uh, Harrison in terms of a family dynamic, not to get too Freudian, but I think that some of the, uh, the arguments or with McCartney saying, well, I never thought George's songs were too good up to this point, or Lennon defending him. It's really John and Paul arguing at each other again, but pivoting through George, triangulating. <laughs> so George is just being used as a, as a factor, if you will, in their, in their own arguments, I think. Sure, and those were just conveniences in a, in a way. I mean, yes, George was sidelined, but he was also being sidelined by another guy, and it wasn't Lennon McCartney, it was George Martin, yeah. who who saw him as a junior member of this partnership. And of course, uh, before him, Brian Epstein. And then after Brian's death, George was being pestered by EMI for the next big thing. And the next big thing, as far as he was concerned and much of the world was going to likely come from Lennon and McCartney or Lennon or McCartney, right? By that point. Mm -hmm. Um, and so George Martin would understandably, uh, look to them and not think of this younger guy who'd sort of developed later. And, uh, what's that? Yeah, I, it, it's, uh, you know, we, I think we sometimes forget, uh, just how central survival was to the Beatles in terms of, of maintaining their su success and sustaining it. You know, it, it all seems so completed now and settled, but of course in 1966, they were still seeing lots of trouble on the horizon. And of course the, uh, the arms race, as Steve Turner calls it, with all the other rock bands at that time, was very high. A lot of great music being made. And, you know, the Beatles were still wondering, what if this all disappears, right? Um, you know, they weren't thinking necessarily that they were set for life. Even in 65, they were wondering, well, in 18 months, what are we going to do when we need to get jobs? <laughs> you know, so... That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> So I'm sure that they were still, uh, you know, pondering that hamster wheel at some level. Mm -hmm. And George Martin, years later, supposedly apologized, apologized to George Harrison for the lack of attention that he got. And Ringo. And Ringo. From early on. Well, well, yeah, he absolutely did with George Harrison. It was in 1993 for the 20th anniversary of the Red and the Blue albums release when uh, the two Georges were handling some of the publicity for the mm -hmm. Beatles. Interesting. And back to cold turkey. I, in your book, I thought I, I some I sit here and I think, boy, what if the Beatles did cover cold turkey as John wanted them to do it? Uh, what that? What would that sound like? And uh, I thought that was pretty amazing that John, you know, put that out to them because he could have pulled rank and said, "No, we're doing it. I'm the boss." And right? I, I'm surprised that he didn't. You know, um, and and that we don't know exactly how he posed it to them. I suppose uh, Mr. Lewison will show us in hopefully not too many decades from now, um, you know, how that took place. But we don't exactly know how it was posed. But I, I think you're right. What if he had posed it like the ballad of John and Yoko and he said, look, I'm excited about this track. Let's go. you get, you got to figure Paul McCartney's in the studio with him. <laughs> Well, you know what? He he wouldn't have had to give back his MBE because Cold Turkey wouldn't have slipped on the charts. There you go. There you go. <laughs> that is possible. With some good McCartney backing vocals, it might have done better. Hey, Ken, one of the uh, – this is Steve again. 
And uh, one of the one of the things you talk about in the book is how uh, you know the Beatles really latched on to eight track when it came around, and and maybe some listeners don't understand what eight track is, and I'm wondering if maybe you could you know like synopsize uh, what eight track is and how it came into play for certainly the last two Beatle albums. Sure. So eight track is uh, if you think about you know magnetic tape is having divisions. Uh, the Beatles started with twin track, moved to four track. Um, and then, uh, of course, 8-Track became the technology to have, and some studios in London did have it at that time, including uh, Olympic and, I guess, Trident, uh, or rather Trident and Olympic, uh, to be chronological. And um, the Beatles wanted access to anything that was new. Uh, we know that anytime a new keyboard instrument or guitar became available in the studio, that's the one they were going to use. You know, They were always about trying to be on the vanguard trying to come up with new sounds for each album and uh they they knew intuitively and through their own professional experience with george martin and jeff emmerich and others that the separation that promised that was promised by eight track with the instruments and being able to result uh, uh do away with if you will the kind of generational loss that you get from bouncing down or having to uh collapse several tracks into one would be mitigated by that. So they were very excited. And um, EMI was very late uh, to the ball game, as they were quite often um, in terms of these kinds of technological leaps. Uh, it sat, the eight-track decks sat it for months uh, in part of the studio as the Beatles waited to be able to have access to them. And, of course, during the White Album, they finally just go and steal them um, and uh, make them available. But... Uh, well, once the record is completed, uh, the studio does a full retrofit and actually goes in and, and knocks around the second floor control room of Studio Two and outfits it for, for eight-track recording. And um, by the time they're ready to use it, it is there and it's ready to go, and it's a really deluxe system. So it, no one really called them on that theft. When I read that portion of the book, I, I found it to be fascinating and funny and almost comical if this would have been film that you know they, they pried this out of the studio and and sort of absconded in the middle of the night with it uh, it seems rather you know an unbelievable tale well they what they did was they really just took it down the hall i mean <laughs> if you're if you're in that hallway right. there's you know it's, it's a matter of feet but uh for them it was it was symbolic you know they 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 were unable to get the studio to so much as change the lighting or the ambiance um, and here where they can really make a material difference with the sound of their music, they can't even get them to move the, the, the tape deck that they, everybody knows they have, uh, into the studio. So, I mean, really nobody was going to stop them. I mean, um, it, but it was, a, yeah. it was a strange outfit. You know, I was, I spent part of last weekend with the great Ken Townsend. Um, and, uh, we were talking about these kinds of, of issues and, uh, I brought up the making, uh, his invention of ADT. And he actually got in trouble for that uh, because, you know, it was about six months later when they realized he'd done it. And they were like, what are you doing this? No, you know, this wasn't required. And, you know, it was kind of a, a strange organization in that way. Well, the, um, yeah. They were very, they, uh, the yeah, they were very austere, really. The I mean, the, the, the philosophy seemed to be that they did all of these wonderful things with nothing. Why should we give them something? <laughs> Certainly. And uh, Ken, Ken brought up something very interesting just this past weekend. You know, we've all thought that the Beatles were able to move to four track uh, because of technological advances at Abbey Road Studios, right? 
or as it was then, EMI Studios in, in 1963 uh, during the making of the With the Beatles record. No, they had it for years before that, but they didn't allot four-track to the Beatles because they hadn't budgeted the Beatles to be able to have four-track yet. They considered the Beatles a pop band, and they only merited two-track because they just weren't worth it. They didn't need it. Uh, they weren't a classical uh, artist, for example, and um, it was during with the Beatles that George Ar- George Martin was able to make the argument that spend a little extra money. This is the Beatles, and of course they do. Hmm. And and with the eight track, that was the first time they were able to what record Ringo's solo in stereo. Right. So they were that that is true. It was the first album recorded entirely in stereo. You Correct. know, there wasn't there wasn't a mono version of it. Mm-hmm. And um the first single I guess that was stereo would have been the ballad of John and Yoko, um, that was recorded precisely in that fashion. Mm-hmm. Um that's right. So Jeff Emmerich, of course, used what was it, a dozen microphones to, to make that stereo recording. It's absolutely gorgeous. You can feel the resistance of the drum heads, you know. When you listen to it, it's it's uh, wonderful stuff. It is. It really is. And in the book, you, you talk about how John would, you know, question their level of achievement with Abbey Road. But John changed every day. His opinion would change all the time. I wonder what John would think of Abbey Road today. And uh, and could you comment on that? He always question. Occasionally, he would question their level of achievement with Abbey Road. I thought that was interesting. Right. That was John Lennon, right? I mean, right. Um, there, there are a couple of things we should say about that. You know, the saddest part is he's a guy who never gets to be 41 and, uh, to, to grow up and grow older like we do. And we all have, and, and to be able to go back and say, you know what? I did say that I was trying to be cool or here's where I was at that time. Um, I do love eight days a week, right? You know, one of his, one of his great targets in 1980. Um, I do like, uh, you know, I, I don't love Maxwell Silverhammer, but I met a kid the other day who loves it. That's good enough for me. So he never be, gets to become, he never gets to grow up and be that guy where we rethink, you know, maybe some of the idiotic things we said in the past. Um, uh, yeah. in this case, uh, you know, when it comes to Abbey road and, and the folks performance, um, I do think he would have gotten to the point where he would have been able to respect and have enough distance from those those moments where he could rethink them. But, you know, he loved to toy with people, uh, even people he didn't know. You know, there, he lived, of course, with uh, Yoko in his final years and, and Fred Seaman was his assistant. Uh, Fred's aunt and uncle, Helen and Norman, uh, also lived with uh, off and on with the, the Lennons in the Dakota. And during the, the last election with Carter and Reagan, you know, John used to put on Norman Seaman, who was an old communist, and he would mess with him and say that, you know, he thinks, well, maybe Ronald Reagan's the right guy, you know. <laughs> and he would, he would sort of get him going, and, and Fred would just sit there and say, you know he's messing with you. But John would play it so well that, you know, Norman was ready to march off into the night. Well, you know, uh, John did seem to get along okay with old Ronnie in the booth on Monday Night Football once, and so maybe that's, that's right. why he was joking with him. But you know, <laughs> but by the same account of of, uh, of Lennon's sort of in retrospect, right? Famously in, in, in 80, he had said, well, if I could do it all over again, I would re-record every single song now that I hear them. It's almost he's saying, now that I am so clear of mind, you know, I wish it was like this, I wish it was like that. And, my, you know, my students are impressed that even in that state toward the end, 
um, he has great affection and solidly behind, you know, you know what, I want to hold your hand is a fantastic record. So even in his, uh, you know, more uh, jaded phase in some ways, uh, he goes back to a very early song like that and defends that when he might sort of not defend um, uh, some of the later material on, on Abbey Road. But he'll go back to something so early and uh, and and say it's a great piece, and I think uh, uh, the kids, as I call my students, right? They they're also impressed when uh, they see in the anthology the old footage of of George being shown the old tape of uh, them singing this boy, and you know here's the 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 you know album oriented era rock star looking back on this piece and saying you know it's a really good tune, it's a really good tune that he could still appreciate the purity of the harmonies, the structure and arrangement of the song and. And I think that that's something that the students can appreciate, that the Beatles didn't feel as though they ever really outgrew uh, some of a material that seems like it's from a different planet compared to all the advances and everything else that they did later on, that, yes, with all the new technology and George trying to figure out the Moog synthesizer, that he could still go back and appreciate harmonizing on this boy. Yeah, that that, that outtake is one of the, the finest moments. I mean, it just... It chokes you up to watch him. Absolutely. Watch the song. Well, Absolutely. Well, let me ask the three professors here. Where do, what do your students think of Abbey Road? Where does it lie within the catalog? Is it their favorite record? Do they not like it? What, Steve, what do your students think about Abbey Road? I, I think sonically they love Abbey Road. They really love it. Um, I, I have one story, which I, I might have even re- repeated here a few weeks ago. I'm not sure. But I had a, um, I had a, a, a Chinese exchange student a girl in my in my class uh, two semesters ago, and she heard almost nothing of the Beatles. She maybe knew two songs or three songs, so she was a good uh, benchmark for how good songs are. And I remember when I got to Abbey Road, and I played the song something after introducing it and setting it up. When the song was finished in the classroom, there was dead silence, and we looked at her, and she was crying, and she said. That is the most beautiful song I have ever heard in my life. Ken, what about you? What do your students uh, think of Abbey Road? I, I, you know, it earns its place in the Beatles story, right? So if you, and I, I assume everyone mostly does this, if you teach the Beatles chronologically and you follow in just a few short weeks them beginning their career and ending on such great heights, um, there is a kind of emotional response. Uh, I Several times when I've, finished up class with the Abbey Road record, I can feel the hairs on the back of my neck go up, right? When when you're hearing golden slumbers and carry that weight in the end. It is a very dramatic and powerful experience. Um, it, 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 they love the Beatles all the way through. You know, I guess right now we're about to do the Help album uh, next week. Um, and some of them have said that With the Beatles is their favorite album of all time. You know, and I, I don't know that they'll continue to say that in, in 12 weeks, but it's just wonderful to see them, the ones who are discovering them for the first time, to see the Beatles through their eyes. Others, of course, came into the class uh, all ready to go um, and, uh, you know, are, are way ahead of all of us. Right. Uh, I have a great student teacher. This uh, He's my teaching assistant, and uh, he is fluent in just about anything. He has perfect pitch. I can scream out, you know, what key is this in? And he'll tell me, well, it's D, you know, like I should know. Wow. Um, and, but we did a hard day's night the other day and he sat at the piano and performed the wind up pianos versions of the guitar and the piano. Mm. It was really quite stunning for the guitar solo, you know? And so 
he's living on an entirely different plane with the Beatles. And he will begin to talk like a great musicologist about, you know, the way they'll move swiftly from one key or one structure to another. And he's left me in the dirt. Professor Gallant. Well, um, you know, you, you, uh, Professor Womack, you, you proceed at a much quicker clip than I do in my class. All if right. You, if you're already, if you're already getting to help and here we are barely into October, if your semester, <laughs> if, if your semester began around the same time that, that, uh, that mine did, um, I must admit, and that maybe I'm a bit of an outlier, um, I don't necessarily agree with all the original contemporary critical opinions that were published about Abbey Road, but it does leave me a little bit wanting, uh, except for George's contributions and perhaps come together a little bit of the sweet. Um, it, it leaves me a little bit flat. Therefore, I, uh, I probably spend a bit more time uh, in the uh, uh, in the early phases, uh, I, I often tell Chachi, you know, my one of my favorite periods is actually the Hamburg period, and uh, and and what I call you know the Great Middle period, the high period from 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 Help Through Revolver, and um, sometimes uh, Abbey Road does get a little bit uh, short shrift, and I do sense a change in student expectations. Having taught the class now, this is its fourteenth year. Um, I can sort of segment the class into maybe three distinct generations. And I'll go back to that old uh, line from Rolling Stone, uh, probably in the mid-90s, that every generation gets the Beatles that it needs. And what they see is the Beatles that they need um, comes from whatever inheritance in their family, whether they discovered it because they were playing music or their parents were playing it. And if their parents are sort of my age or a little bit younger, they're coming to the Beatles more of age from the early 70s. And that is really drenched in... Um, Let It Be and Abbey Road, to a lesser extent, uh, maybe the White Album. And I think it takes a little bit longer for people to go back and appreciate the, the middle period and even the early period for that to find its hipness again, right, and its, and its groove. So um, probably, uh, you know, my students really know that album through, uh, through something, and here comes the sun, mostly. Uh, and I think that might have been given to us by, uh, by Rock Band and, and even some of the initial downloads on iTunes back in the day. Uh, were, were, were those songs near the top. So um, it does leave me a little bit, uh, a little bit dry, uh, a little bit dry. Um, so I don't necessarily stay awake at night if I feel as though I haven't given it a full uh, critical display in class. So there's, there's me as the crank. <laughs> well, well, David, I, I think we're going to have a fist fight after this uh, session is over here. Um, but I have a, uh, I have, I have a question, another question for for Kenny. I, Ken, uh, we all love Jeff Emmerich, and um, you know, those of us that have been in the Beatles uh, world for a long, long time, have been aware of him for a long, long time. Again, some of the listeners may not, and you dedicated your book to him. Uh, can you, uh, would you, would you mind speaking about Jeff Emmerich a little bit and in, in his major contributions? Well, absolutely. So he was the kind of wonderkind engineer uh, who was elevated uh, to be the Beatles engineer in 1966 um, when he was, what, all of 20 or, or whatever. He was um, uh, kind of a public school lad who made good because of his his excitement about, uh, about creating sound and capturing it in the studio. At, you know, and Ken Townsend, uh, talk about, you mentioned the word cranky before, <laughs> there are a few people who are crankier than Jeff Emmerich. Uh, 
Um, you know, he was known by some of the others behind his back in the studio as Emeroids because he could get really, <laughs> really, he could get, uh, he could get cranked up and, and, uh, dark about just any, about anything. But, um, the thing that distinguished him, uh, you know, according to folks like Ken Townsend was he had these amazing ears. He just had incredible quality of sound and, um, he could hear absolutely anything, um, at the far reaches of a recording. And consequently, he has presided over a number of masterworks, and not just the Beatles, by the way. I mean, obviously, there's Revolver and Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road, but we also have these, um, you know, amazing records, including one that maybe not all of the listeners know, but one of his uh, his last full-fledged productions was uh, Get Away From Me by Nellie Mackay, which is one of the great headphone albums. Um, <laughs> Imperial Bedroom with Elvis Costello is yes. a staggering work. Just a had a great understanding of sonic landscapes, uh, like worked on band on the run and some other McCartney records too. And, uh, I asked him, uh, a while back, um, obviously when he was living, you know, why, you know, why do they keep coming to you, Jeff? What is it? And he said, you know, I don't think they want me to come in and make Sergeant Pepper anymore. Um, he said, you know, that, that had its place and obviously was, was very, very significant. He said, what they want from me is they know that, I know how to make it sound like a record. And I love that because you can, you can take that statement and it's very portable. Yeah. I mean, he knew how you could come in as a band and you may sound like a great band, but that doesn't mean you sound like something you want to play on a CD and MP3 vinyl, whatever. And he knew how to make it sound like a record. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. So, you know, the other thing that was going on during the making of Abbey road was the fact that, uh, John and Yoko were in a car accident uh, they had a bed in the studio for Yoko, and little things would set off uh, significant fights. And I need you to clarify that for me, Ken, because I love the story. Uh, I mean, I love it's a sad story, but you know, Yoko takes a cookie out of George's bag. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, can, can you elaborate on that and what happened <laughs> after that? <laughs> sure, it was an amazing. Uh, it was the day they they were they were working and uh, listening to a playback up in the booth, I guess, in studio two, and they could see directly down in the studio. And you could, if you, if you imagine looking down through that window, you can see the bed was sort of in the far corner there. And she creeps out and goes to his guitar case and takes his, his cookie, essentially, his suggested biscuit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, George screams something like, that bitch! And uh, all hell breaks loose, because, you know, John wants to defend her, but she stole his cookie. I mean, that's not cool. No, um, never. And, uh, you know, it, I got all of this through John Curlander, who's just watching in disbelief. He was 21 years old, a tape operator. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he, he doesn't know what to do. They, in fact, he can't do anything. Uh, somehow, though, in that same day, they settle down, and then they go and they make those amazing guitar solos together. You know, so that's the genius of the Beatles, right? They can turn on a dime. Yeah, pretty amazing. Great story. I love the book, Solid State, the Story of Abbey Road and the End of the Beatles. And let's talk for a moment about uh, Sun King and Mean Mr. Mustard and how something as simple in your book, something as simple as John inviting Paul to play on the song made Paul really happy. Then they go off together to smoke a joint, they come back, they're giggling and they're laughing, and then they proceeded to do some great stuff. That little, that little come on from John to Paul really made Paul feel good, right? Absolutely. And, uh, he, you know, he loved pleasing John. And, and 
but John was right there for Paul. You know, one of the songs that John would malign in later years was certainly Honey Pie. But one of the, the most magnificent aspects of that is John's casino guitar solo that sounds like a reed instrument. It's so well played and finessed into the, the corners of that, that great little tune. So they love to please each other. And as Ringo would say, you know, nothing excited them more than working on a great track. And there was no band that had more great tracks than the Beatles. So they had plenty to be happy about. Um, you know, when we look at this, this demise, their demise, it's so many factors come into play. We've mentioned several of them already. Part of it is just growing up and growing older and not wanting to hang out with the guys you knew when you were 15. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's pretty amazing. And, um, I found it, you know, I, I read in your book how pretty much everyone in the band hated Maxwell Silva Hammer, even Paul didn't Paul like, it. like it. That's right. Yeah. So why would, I would think that John would again, pull rank and say, put that on something else, give it to Mary Hopkin, uh, give it to somebody else. We don't want it on the record because I guess what Paul and uh, Paul and George Martin wanted like a symphonic type of thing on side two. And that's how they relegated it. And John wanted a straight ahead rock album on side one, but then they plop in Maxwell Silverhammer. And I, I sit there and I go, well, why didn't John pull rank on that when they all really didn't think that much of the song? You know, nobody really had rank, I don't think. Um, you know, if, if it were completed, the Beatles tended to use it. I mean, look at the White Album, that big sprawling thing, and all but about three or so of the songs they record were used for it. They really did deploy almost everything they made, and Maxwell Silverhammer followed suit. Um, I, I think they were comfortable at a certain level with everything they were doing going on the record. It was in retrospect when he started to make those comments. But you're right. I mean, nobody really liked that song. It was funny. I was uh, doing a thing the other day with Alan Parsons, and uh, somebody started to mock Maxwell Silverhammer, and Alan said, well, you know, that's one of my favorite songs on the album. <laughs> and, and, he said, I'm, he, and he said, and he said, I'm dead serious. Uh, you know, it was, it was funny, but, uh, and, and look, I liked that song when I was a kid. Yeah, me too. Uh, the more, sure. And the more I, but the more you think about it and you start to look at the breadth of their achievement, it is kind of out of whack in terms of some of the other things that they mm -hmm. were, they were doing and, and the masterpieces that were coming out of that band. Well, the evening of October 1st in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there was a, a great group of uh, really great New England musicians and they did a retrospect and a recreation of abbey road and i played the anvil on the song on stage Ooh. oh nice and so um i like and the audience was roaring they love the song so you know it depends on who you ask but uh, it, it has its place on abbey road and it's still a good track although disliked by some and uh nonetheless um it's a, a you know it was a great song by the beatles so so now there's something else that that connects you with mal evans that's correct. That's Another true. thing. There you go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then, you know, I've always, you've always heard, you know, Paul was the master of perfection and he'd forced the Beatles to do a hundred plus, you know, takes on songs. But that was true of all of them. I, didn't they do like a hundred plus takes of Not Guilty and it never even made well, it on a Beatle album? Right. Yeah, they sure did. And, and they were all like that. You know, that was one of the things that bound them together. This wasn't a jam band necessarily that loved improv. They would work like dogs until they got something, at least to their minds, that was right. Whatever right was, they were working toward that, which is 
what must have what must have uh, absolutely beguiled uh, Glenn Johns and later George Martin as they tried to make the Get Back album a reality, following the prescription that Lennon and McCartney gave that we want this warts and all kind of album. They never wanted warts and all. That was not who they were. Maybe they aspired to be the people who would be warts and all, but you know, for the most part, the Beatles and their solo albums are, you know, pretty sonically impressive productions. Well, they, except maybe when, after time, uh, what was out there with warts and all um, uh, could be packaged and sold, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, that I think some of the warts and all is. Is, is why we have such expanded box sets and everything else. I mean, you know, the warts and all are the uh, original versions or various takes that existed uh, over the world at, at large, you know, first heard uh, on the anthology series as opposed to the world at small that were, you know, trolls like I was uh, for bootlegs and such. Um, you know, some of that sounds awfully contemporary. Uh, my students will you know, listen side by side the uh, uh, the anthology version of um, I'm Only Sleeping versus the album version. And, um, it, you know, they will say one sounds much more contemporary, meaning the, the rougher version. And it feels very warm to them of, of, of uh, musicians just playing into each other's noses, as they would say, um, as opposed to the, uh, the, the trumped up version on the, uh, uh, on the album and it has its proper place there. So that leads into a discussion about production or overproduction and things that you're talking about to remove all of those, uh, to remove all of the warts, right? To make it, to make it clean, uh, even, if you, even in, in its clean state, you want it to sound rough, as, as Lennon would want in some ways. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's an interesting dynamic uh, to think about um, uh, how things are washed through in the, uh, in the process of, of finally getting something down um, on tape. Well, and, and that leads to, if I may pose a question, what did the three of you think about the, the new release and, and the bonus discs, uh, et cetera, with Abbey Road? Well, I have the box set right here. I brought it with me along with your book, and I love the box set. I especially love the uh, the second CD with the sessions. I love I Want You, especially with the the great uh, Billy Preston at the end. Just amazing. I love the Ballad of John and Yoko, where John calls Paul Ringo and Paul calls John George. I love that. <laughs> old, old Brown Shoe. And I think the entire box set, uh, for me, uh, and I and I played it on my show, and people just respond to it, and they love it. I thought it was outstanding. I thoroughly enjoyed it with the book inside and uh, uh, the stories and so on. And for me, you know, when I bought Abbey Road at the Harvard Coop in 1969 when it came out in Harvard Square, and it was the most amazing experience. And the thing that stands out to me was, and this is what's wrong with CDs and digital nowadays, because I would sit with friends in my room and we'd, we'd shut the lights and let the album side play through. I Want You would end. And we'd sit there for minutes while the record continued to spin around because we were like, wow, what was that? And kids don't get that whole, they don't, they don't see that or hear that nowadays. It goes right into, you know, here comes the sun. And uh, I was just taken by Abbey Road back then and even more so now with the box set. I think it's great. And I, uh, I was pretty amazed when I heard the release that they did about maybe two weeks ago of uh, Here Comes the Sun uh, sonically. I, I loved how it sounded. But then they released a, um, a, a video that, that Beatles.com put together or Apple put together. 
And when I looked at it, it, it had been online for six hours, and the number of views was 467,000 hits Wow! in, in six hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, um, uh, now we're talking, is this, we're talking about Shabby Road from the Ruddles? No, <laughs> no, 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 oh, no, oh, no, 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 Abbey Road. Abbey Road, yes. Uh, you I, know, uh, <laughs> Ken, if you want to rethink your partnership with David Gallant, <laughs> you can certainly do that. <laughs> Everybody needs a trickster figure in there. Uh, <clears throat> and, um, I, uh, what I have heard of it is courtesy of, of Chachi Show. I, I don't actually uh, own any of the product yet, but I, I'm always interested in the event nature um, of, of the releases like this, in the packaging, which is so important, um, as, uh, as it always had been, and, and, the, and the multimedia nature of it and, and the literature that is part of it. I think that's where I'm going to be uh, more interested as opposed to some of the, uh, the deeper side cuts. Um, but then they may become the favorite versions of, of, uh, of some of those songs if I, if I hadn't heard them before in that state. So I'm always interested in the, in the event nature of what is rolled down. I was actually talking to Chachi today, and we were trying to think of, well, what will be the next event? Because just like back in the day when they were on the treadmill of a certain number of singles and a certain number of albums per year timed for particular releases, like what will come out Beatle-wise for the holidays, right? If this came out for the anniversary, what, what, will, what will be uh, in the shops, in the shop windows around Christmas? Uh, so I'm always interested in the event nature of these things. And Ken, what did you think about it? Well, I, you know, I, honestly, I've been pretty happy with all three of the box sets. Um, there are little blemishes here and there, but for the, you know, for the most part, I like the separation, even the, the greater separation that Giles, Martin and Sam O'Kell were able to create. Um, obviously there were fewer outtakes to choose from the one, the come together take I adore. It just shows McCartney and Lennon with some really fun banter. Um, as John tries to work his guide vocal, that's a lot of fun. I, I, I do, I too love, uh, Billy Preston and, and that take of, I want you. Um, I, I, if I had my druthers, I wish we'd had, uh, some version of the solos so that we could understand how Alan, Alan Parsons stitched those together. Mm -hmm. But, uh, that wasn't available for whatever reason. And another thing kind of worries me and maybe, I'm bringing it up for this reason. On the remix, I feel like maybe they kind of uh, glossed over that amazing moment right before the coda when John's voice goes into the red. Um, uh, but I guess that's why we still have all the great records that were already made in the in the original mixes. But it seems like it may have been kind of softened there. But I, I love how it goes into the red. But like I said, those are minor blemishes in, in a great experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Another big thing for me in 1969 when I was a kid, um, boy, the whole Paul is dead stuff, just it just made everything so much more fun. I certainly knew Paul was still alive, but but looking in the clues and the Abbey Road album was filled, you know, certainly on the cover and the back. Uh, it, it grabbed everyone's imagination and sales of Beatle albums in terms of the White Album, Magical Mystery Tour, Sgt. Pepper, through the roof. I remember that distinctly because uh, I think I seem to recall the sales were kind of waning a little bit for the Beatles. Uh, but when everybody thought Paul was dead and there were clues, it was crazy. I thoroughly enjoyed that. It was a great ride. 
comment anybody? Oh, that's beautiful. It, it's sure, it, it illustrates the, uh, just the incredible nature of their fame in 1969 that life dispatched, you know, uh, what was it? A Land Rover of, of, of photographers to go find Paul to make sure he was alive. <laughs> right, right. right. You know, the famous picture. Beautiful. Yes. Yeah. You know, if I was dead, I'd be the first to know. Yeah. You know, so Derek Taylor might have said that about Paul. <laughs> no, that was Paul. Paul that was Paul. That. Yeah. Uh, really pretty yeah. amazing. So, Ken, um, what's next for you? What I mean, because we were just talking about that earlier. I, I guess the next 50th would probably be the last of the 50s is the Let It Be album. And uh, I don't know what Apple's planning for that. But what are you working on in terms of uh, books relating to the Beatles? You have a project in the works? Well, I mean, at the moment, I'm working uh, on a, the story, the twin stories of All Things Must Pass and Layla, uh, which were made in the summer of 1970, and of course, bear all nice. sorts of biographical and autobiographical connections. Uh, but also, many of the same musicians are playing on those two records, and so they occupy such an important role in, certainly, in, in the story of Harrison and Clapton which is one that we don't think about enough I, into my mind. And then secondly, in the birth of this whole album-oriented rock thing, right, this monolith, you know, flowers from records just like those two. Well, that's fantastic. Well, Mr. Womack, what a thrill. It's been. Do you have any more questions, Steve? Are you good? I just have one more comment. Okay. That's really it. And <laughs> I, I was really taken, and it's, it's appropriate that we do this at the end. Sure. Um, uh, Ken, you opened the book with a T.S. Eliot a quote, which I just thought was perfect for this, and it's, it's this. What we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. Perfect for that, that album, I, I believe. Uh, and don't, don't you yeah. think the Beatles did that over and over again, too? I mean, you have Sgt. Pepper, you think it's over uh, with that amazing chord, and then here comes the inner groove, or... Actually, let's go back an album, right? Uh, we have Tomorrow Never Knows. It's oh. fading off into the sunset. And then here comes this crashing piano. Uh, and obviously, Her Majesty punctures the idea of closure with Abbey Road. Mm -hmm. okay, Ken, maybe the, the question would be if, if uh, then dealing with Let It Be, uh, if, if Elliot would gloss over, do we decide that the Beatles went out with a bang or with a whimper? <laughs> right. Uh, and so I, I guess one thing that was, was kind of uh, funny, I always had to keep rereading the, uh, uh, the title of your, of your text, of your monograph, because I kept on doing that, you know, weird sort of transposition of letters, and I kept on reading soiled state and not solid state. And I'm thinking, <laughs> is something subliminally getting in here? Am I doing the sort of uh, uh, soilfish, coilfish problem from Moby Dick? And I thought, well, you know, maybe by the end of the story, the solid state was not so solid anymore, and, and it was kind of soiled or sullied or however you want to approach it. So maybe my misreading was telling me something that uh, I was going to get to by the end of your book anyway. So, um, But it's a, it's, it's a, it's a great, it's a great, uh, uh, guide and you know if there was one of those uh, if I could do one of those single album courses maybe a short course uh, in, a, in a summer session or, or a winter session and get away with a few things online certainly this would be the main text so uh, don't be surprised if somehow it's getting adopted in some 
courses and classrooms. Oh, well, I, I would be honored. Well, that would, that would be uh, very flattering. And uh, Mr. Gallant, you're in rare form today. <laughs> I appreciate you being here today. And, of course, Steve Minichello, both professors of the Beatles at Suffolk University, Worcester State University, Worcester Polytech, Polytech, respectively. And Mr. Womack, such a pleasure to speak to you. We love the book, Solid State, the story of Abbey Road and the end of the Beatles. I hope you enjoyed our little, uh, gee, almost an hour. We hate to take up so much of your time. I know you're a busy man. You're all talked out. You've been talking for weeks and weeks about Abbey Road. <laughs> when does your tour end of, of, of the Abbey Road run for you? Uh, this, this may be getting close to it. I'm going to start doing a lot of talks over the next few weeks uh, where I do presentations on the record and uh, meet folks out in the, you know, mostly the greater New York City area, but I'll be going a little further afoot on occasion. Well, we hope to see you. And, uh, and for anybody that uh, is online, I really enjoyed your TED Talk. I thought that was uh, fantastic. And uh, you can find that online as well. But Ken Womack, a pleasure. And uh, hope you enjoyed your time here on Get Back to the Beatles. And we only wish you the best. Thank you for bringing such a great, great book. Uh, to the forefront here as we celebrate 50 years of Abbey Road. Pretty amazing, 50 years ago. So thank you, Ken. We sincerely appreciate it. Hey, thanks, fellas. Uh, it's just a pleasure to be with you. It was great being a guy just barely out of high school sitting with three professors. <laughs> and I think I left, I left you guys speechless twice, I think, during the whole interview. So uh, not bad. So, Ken, thank you. We really appreciate it, and we had lots of fun. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Okay, bye. Take care. So, gentlemen, all good? Mr. Yaz, have we disconnected from, uh, from the great Ken Womack? Yes, you can say all the honest no, things no, you no. want to say we, about we, him. No, no, no. We love Ken. He's great. <laughs> no. We thought it was good. It was and, terrific. Yeah, he uh, is Good job, David and uh, Steve. We really want to thank you. Go ahead, Steve. You know, the last thing here is uh, I, I didn't ask him, but, you know, he references Mark Lewis in a lot, which, of course, yes. everybody who's smart would reference him. But in my class, uh, David... Um, we refer to Mark Lewison as God. Oh, well, uh, you know, um, I think uh, some of his work, um, uh, the written work, is is a bit too, not that it's too weighty or too dense, but there's just too much of it. Uh, as students that I had years and years ago before I transitioned to a couple of different texts, and I went through several, as you know, and I ended up as sort of with the main text being Jonathan Gould's Can't Buy Me Love, but we had gone through Philip Norman, and we had gone through Bob Spitz, and students would never forgive me for that, because there was just so much in there. It was so weighty. And I think Lewison, you know, uh, he can he can be that way sometimes. And um, I don't know that students necessarily feel that comfortable uh, to discuss things in the presence of God <laughs> in some ways, you <laughs> know. You go. Uh, so, you know, I, I maybe tend to keep it a uh, uh, a little bit lighter, and and in any in in any sense, I'm glad that we had a chance to talk to Ken because, sure. um, in any field of of subject matter or 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 critical inquiry, I think that that the field can can suffer if there is one major authoritative source and only one authoritative source, that one can't necessarily speak or get through something without checking with that one source. And mm -hmm. I think that's, that, that can be, it's great that he's amassing this and he, and he is the authority at the same time. It, it can be a little bit, uh, it, it, the daunting nature can have a, um, I hate to use a, a legal 
reference, but uh, can have a chilling effect on, on the rest of those who are in that field, in, in mm-hmm. that endeavor. So Lewison's great, but um, at a certain point, uh, we hope that it doesn't uh, uh, limit other voices, you know, because if it's one thing about the Beatles, whether it's listen, the listeners with the music or, 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 or academics like us or, or those in the entertainment field and experts like Chachi, um, is that you need that sort of broad base and the multiplicity of voices from all different levels. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's true, and thank you, Mr. Gallant. I do want to give a couple of plugs before we leave. If you are in the Arlington, Massachusetts area or the New England area, we have a big show called the Magical History Tour. Something new, a Beatles experience. Friday night, October 18th, 8 p.m. It's myself with the great Beatles film archivist Eric Taros. We'll be showing unseen, rarely seen footage. We have some newly discovered sound. Two hours plus of stories and films. Lots of fun. Regentheater.com. Also... I do want to give a plug as Live Nation is presenting Classical Mystery Tour, the music of the Beatles with the Symphony New Hampshire Orchestra. And that's Friday night, December 27th, a couple of months away, uh, at 7.30 p.m. in New Hampshire at the SNHU Arena. So, um, gee, Mr. Minichello, great to have you back again. I know you come and go as you please here, and that's great. Thank you, Ringo. Really appreciate that. Mr. Gallant, <laughs> everything okay? Everything's fine. I'm glad that our spiritual leader is playing that famous cut from the Beastie Boys song, uh, from Paul's Boutique, where they sampled this, <laughs> which then led into the whole era of legal wrangling around sampling. So uh, That's right. There you go. Now, these events you mentioned, none of them have anything to do with the Tragical History Tour, of course. That with is Dirk incorrect. Dirk and Stig and no, Barry Wom. Nothing yeah. to do with the, although Barry has been sick of late in the hospital, so he wish, we wish him, wish well. him well. He's awesome. And uh, David Yaz, a famed uh, producer, director, boss, and spiritual leader. How was the last hour? Was it okay? It was fantastic. Typical of uh, a back to the Get Back to the Beatles episode and uh, our fans all around the world. By the way, you're now on iHeartRadio. I don't. Did I say that earlier in the you program did, already? It, okay. But you have it up yeah, on well, the I screen. Yeah, I put it up on the screen so you can see. It says Back to the Beatles. It's supposed That's to be right. Get Back to the Beatles. We'll we'll take a look at that. Somebody's fired over here, so don't. We'll, yeah. we'll take care of that, Josh. Well, maybe yes. David Yaz should be. Oh, he's the boss. <laughs> <laughs> we can't, we can't nah. fire him. But hey, there's all kinds of great podcasts on the Boston Podcast Network. Monsterland is one of my favorites with Maddie and Ronnie. Uh, I love that stuff. I love the the occult and death and spirits and ghosts and Bigfoot and Sasquatch and all that other stuff. Well, m- my favorites are the, the, the Boston podcast. As far as we know, the only daily podcast in the Boston area. Oh, that's See, right. Professor Gallant knows who to kiss up to. As, Thank as, you, yes, as well as, <laughs> Who hosts that, David? As well as Are You Not Entertained? Well, uh, Boston podcast is, is, is hosted by our by our spiritual leader. Oh, guide. David, yes. Yes, yes, yes. So and, he works uh, every day on a podcast. Uh, sort this of. is what I hear, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, this you, is what I hear. Uh, well, maybe it is work. I <laughs> took Russia. I took Russia Shana off, Chacha. I know you'd allow me that. I had no idea you were Jewish. I'm kind of Jewish. Oh, really? I'm, I'm an Irish. <laughs> I'm an Irish Jew, as you know. So <laughs> well, you know the Irish side of my family. Well, that's fantastic. We do love David Yaz, and we do love the Boston Podcast Network. Much. But bigger than that, we love you. Thank you for tuning into our show. You can hear Breakfast with the Beatles. On in New England, it's called New England's Breakfast with the Beatles. On Saturday mornings from six to eight a.m. Boston time. Sunday mornings from ten a.m. to noon Boston time. New Hampshire and Maine. 
Uh, check us out. Enjoy the show, I hope. And uh, come back to our podcast called Get Back to the Beatles. Once again, thank you, Steve Minichello, professor at Worcester State University and Worcester Polytech. Mr. David Gallant, Suffolk University, both in back to back to teaching and telling students about the Beatles. Absolutely. And, and Chachi, they, they, they better be up listening to your program. It is an assignment on the syllabus. And the, the first couple of quizzes, there's been some information about your show for extra credit. And sadly, none of them have uh, um, managed to answer the questions. Nobody got it right. But the show is on Sundays from 10 to noon. Students can't get up early enough for 10 a.m. I know Saturdays, 6 to 8 a.m., a little early. They even know that they can listen to it at any time because the shows are archived. Yeah, they're archived at seacoastoldies.com, the station up in New Hampshire, Maine. And still, what's wrong with kids today? What's wrong with kids today? (laughs) Yes. Don't don't get me going. Okay. (laughs) Okay, everybody. Thank you all for tuning in to Get Back to the Beatles. We'll see you here next time. Take care. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.